initially taboos would form around don't eat that like it's not good for you it's toxic do eat this it is good for you and, and so those laws you can see how just over time they would become sublimated and at some point they were no longer just about food they were about our tribe doesn't eat that let that tribe go ahead and eat it <laughs> and, and get sick and and we think you know in, in 2020 the age of science and technology that we're doing something radically different that all of our dietary decisions are evidence-based and rational baloney This is the Dr. John Berardi Show, a podcast that seeks important lessons in a seemingly unlikely place amid competing points of view. In each episode, I look at fascinating, sometimes even controversial topics through the minds of divergent thinkers, and together we tease out unifying threads from ideas that may feel irreconcilable. Today's topic, Diet Debates Part 2. In part one of this series, we covered what is perhaps the biggest diet debate of the decade, plants versus animals for human health, and possible ways to reconcile the two. Here in part two, we'll cover two other debates, plants versus animals for environmental health and the ideal macronutrient split, looking for common ground among these also. In part one of this series, I concluded that for facilitating personal health, the best available evidence is pretty clear. Eat food, meaning food that is minimally processed, close to its natural state. Not too much, which is usually accomplished by eating minimally processed food, and a satisfying mix of plants and animals. To arrive at this place, we essentially split the difference between Dr. David Katz's recommendations, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and Dr. Paul Saladino's, meat and organs, Yet, in our first episode, Dr. Katz said something that we probably ought to examine. There are no healthy people on an uninhabitable planet, and we are rather blithely and, and blindly blundering our way in that very direction. And uh, I, I would go so far as to say you cannot really call yourself a health professional in 2020 if you don't advocate frequently and fiercely for the health of the planet. From his perspective, food plays an important role here. The single largest reason to argue against animal food predominant diets, beautifully articulated in the Eat Lancet report on uh, food, people, and the planet, is that the carbon footprint associated with animal food production is massively higher than plants, water utilization massively higher, land use massively higher, contaminants, pollution massively higher, on and on it goes. We simply cannot do it at the scale of 8 billion hungry homo sapiens or more, and that's where we are now, we will soil our nest. And I've got kids. And you know, I, I think the single most compelling argument against you know, eating animal foods is sure, it, it might in fact be perfectly good to eat a diet that's richly infused by wild animals, you know, like our Stone Age ancestors. So you know, get your bow and arrow, eat antelope, eat deer. Eight billion homo sapiens cannot do that. The only way for us to eat animal food is to mass produce it. Mass producing it has enormous environmental costs. Yet not everyone agrees that the logical consequence is to simply eliminate animal foods and eat more plant foods. Again, Dr. Paul Saladino. So this is one of the more frustrating straw man arguments that plant-based advocates try to make, and we can unpack it from the beginning. The first thing to realize and to accept is that there are nearly 8 billion people on the planet. 
And there is perhaps no way of eating right now that we are currently doing that will be able to feed all 8 billion people a high quality diet, okay? So when they say you can't feed everybody a carnivore diet, I say that's a straw man argument. So let's talk about ecosystems. Let's talk about 250 million bison, elk, antelope, pronghorn, deer that were living in North America in 1850 and created some of the most fertile soil in the world that was then monocropped into oblivion when we brought in you know, agriculture into the middle of the country. So what we know without a doubt is that animals living on an ecosystem, that is grazing animals, ruminant animals, living on grasslands, create more fertile soil than they began with, right? This is how you make soil. How do you make dirt? How do you make earth? You put animals in an ecosystem. <laughs> animals eat plants, they poop and pee on the land, and they then push those, uh, the nutrients in their poop and pee back into the, into the land. Animals are not nuclear reactors. They're not destroying nitrogen. Uh, we have a massive problem. Uh, one of the greatest uh, triumphs, quote unquote, of the last century was creating synthetic fertilizer. And the reason that was critical was because we had monocropped all of our land so badly that we were not going to be able to grow any more food. Well, you know why we need fertilizer that's synthetic? You know why we needed to be able to isolate nitrogen to make synthetic fertilizer in the 1940s? Because we stopped raising animals on the land. Because we stopped hunting within ecosystems. And anyone who's ever been to a farm that is regenerative, these animals, predominantly beef, but they could be bison, they could be lamb, they could be all sorts of ruminants. They're fed grass from the minute they're born. I guess they get milk then, but they're fed grass throughout their life cycle. They're never fed in a CAFO, a clustered animal feeding operation. They're never fed grain. And they graze on the land and they eat the grass down to the earth. And then they move to another field and the grass regenerates and it comes back even thicker. There's an amazing farm in Georgia called White Oak Pastures that I've been to uh, along with a number of other regenerative farms. And the grass is so thick. The grass is so healthy. Those cattle are doing nothing but improving the earth. I'll tell you, there are birds flying around. There are thousands of animals and ecosystems. There are mice and you know voles in the ground. There are earthworms and beetles and uh, birds in the air and snakes. And there are ecosystems, okay? It's an ecosystem just like 1850, 250 ruminants in North America. Now, that stands in stark contrast to what happens when you monocrop plants. If you grow a plant in a row of lettuce or soy or corn or whatever uh, we're going to make Beyond Burgers or synthetic plant foods for humans out of, it's dead earth. <laughs> in order to make that plot of land, they had to till it, which killed thousands, tens of thousands of rabbits, voles, you know, all sorts of things that live in the earth, beetles, worms, bee colonies. It's incredibly disruptive to an ecosystem to till the land. Not only do you release carbon that is stored in the soil, which goes into the atmosphere, but you destroy tens of thousands of organisms. The only hope that we have as humans is to create ecosystems-based agriculture, which includes both plants and animals. And predominantly the animals are eating grass, which is great because humans don't want to eat grass, nor can we eat grass. So that's what we need to be doing. And there are great life cycle analyses of these regenerative farms that show the soil content is increased. We are sequestering carbon into the soil. These cows are carbon negative. They sequester more carbon into the soil than they produce. What very few people understand is that carbon cycles have been happening throughout evolution on this planet for hundreds of millions of years. And that when a cow 
creates methane by burping, that goes into the atmosphere, it's oxidized to carbon dioxide, which is then inhaled by a plant and fixed into carbohydrates, which are then eaten by a cow. It's the same carbon atom that's been going round and round for millions of years. But when you burn fossil fuel, you are liberating carbon that is stored in the bedrock of the earth, and that is new carbon in the atmosphere. So we are not doing the same things here. Plants do not sequester carbon into the soil in the same way that animals do. So monocrop agriculture is completely not sustainable. So let's address the last piece of this, which is how scalable is grass-fed, grass-finished regenerative agriculture? It's totally scalable, at least in the United States, right? It's extremely scalable. There are hundreds of thousands of acres of land that are being that are laying fallow, that are not being farmed because they've been monocropped by farmers. And the Conservation Reserve Program is a governmental program that pays these farmers millions of dollars a year to not farm this land. Well, the faster way to regenerate that land is by raising cattle on it, and that's being done. But we could save hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars a year, hundreds of thousands of acres could be used for cattle, and 99.5% of cattle are fed grass for 85% of their life. The only reason they go to feedlots and grain finishing is because people want that type of meat that's fattier and because it drives the price down and you get a better price. There is enough land to raise all of the cattle we are doing today on grass feeding, and there's plenty of land to scale it. And so let's put first things first. Let's not make the argument that says there are too many people on the earth to feed all the meat that we want to feed them. That's putting the cart before the horse. Let's figure out how humans are supposed to be healthy and then let our smartest engineers and our smartest forest agronomists and our smartest agriculturalists and our smartest farmers figure out how to do this. And what would happen if we took a lot of the land that monocrop agriculture is growing plants on that are not healthy for humans, there is plenty of land in this country that could be ecosystems-based farming of animals, which is better for humans and better for the land. Yet the idea that plant-based advocates are in favor of monocrop agriculture is a bit of a straw man argument itself. For example, Dr. Katz isn't arguing for more monoculture. It's actually much more tenable if we move incrementally in that direction because you know the issue is if you haphazardly go from people who are just barely scraping by in a mixed diet and say, okay, let's do a thought experiment. Let's remove the animal food from their diet. What kind of shape would they be in? You know, looking at populations that are protein marginal and, and amino acid marginal and, and other particular nutrients they may be deriving principally from animal food sources. And let's just, let's just expand the plants populating their diets currently, not improve the quality, but just, you know, it's all plants now. So if your, your diet was corn and a little bit of meat, now it'll be all corn. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you can do a thought experiment where all the results of that are bad. Now, what we need to do, you know, is modify, we need to move away from monoculture to, you know, agricultural systems that are smaller, decentralized, you know, people like uh, Daniel Nirenberg at Food Tank are doing great work examining different ways to produce food. But also, you know, you, you eradicate massive acreage turned over to monoculture, which is bad for the environment, leads to unbalanced diets, and you focus on producing a variety of crops, crop rotation, you know, essentially, you know, plant-predominant regenerative agricultural systems. And by the way, there is room in those systems for some animal food. It's just much less prominent than it is in terms of the global diet. There should be no dogma on the menu. You know, form should follow function. The function of these steps should be to optimize the health of people who are already here. We have to do something about stabilizing the size of the human population too. That's another discussion. 
and preserving you know the, the the native systems of the biosphere so this planet remains viable but we don't have to distribute everything equally if there are places around the world where preserving access to meat and dairy is actually going to help people because they are prone to protein deficiency we should preferentially direct those resources there we don't have to eradicate them so you know again i, I think it's a straw man argument it's basically you know let's look at the plants people are eating today many people are nutritionally marginal with plants plus animal food let's just take away the animal food and see what we've got we've got insufficient diets we've got deficient diets therefore that can't work that's a straw man version of what we're talking about okay so notice that while it's easy to fixate on the differences in their arguments there's probably some important overlap specifically they clearly agree that monocropping is a problem also they agree that if we hope to do better at feeding and expanding population we need more sustainable regenerative agriculture that contributes quality food. Now, whether the product of that should be mostly plants or mostly animals, no one really knows yet, not from an environmental standpoint or from a human health standpoint. More research and more innovation is clearly needed. Yet we don't get any further if we conflate the two. As Brian St. Pierre, director of nutrition for Precision Nutrition says, Like, I want to be able to talk about them as two separate things because eating purely for human health and longevity, you know, you might get certain answers. And if I'm eating purely for planetary health and longevity, well, you might come up to a, you know, maybe a whole different set of answers, but there's likely some stuff that's purely overlapping. And that's likely where policymakers need to land in the overlap. Yet, as individuals, it's difficult to know what kinds of eating decisions will contribute more positively to planetary health. As an individual eater, I find it challenging to know, like, oh, is this choice I'm making, is this better for the environment? You know, I've, you hear all these little tactical things. Oh, you know, replace almonds with some other healthy fat source that's far less water intensive. Like, okay, like, that's good. But how many people, like, I know this. Does your av does my neighbor realize that almonds are really water intensive? Like they're eating almonds, like man, these, this is this is full of healthy fats and it's plant based. It must be good for the planet, right? Like there aren't some really simple heuristics to follow that make it easier to make better choices there. And I think that's the the challenge of it. In order to simplify it for the average consumer, you need to create some like relatively easy rules of thumb that people can follow to help them eat more environmentally friendly. Right. Like that, to me, that's the only way it's going to work. And it needs to somewhat align with eating healthy for other goals. Right. Just like people don't if, if people only cared about the environment, everyone would drive a Prius. Right. But that's clearly not what happens because people buy vehicles to serve all kinds of other purposes. Right. To, to do all kinds of other jobs for them. And food is the same way. Um, so there needs to be overlap with, okay, oh, and this also serves my health goal, my performance goal, my athletic goal, what have you. I asked Brian how he thinks about all this when it comes to his own diet and his family's, and here's what he said. So I've given more thought to that, and I try to include, you know, more plant-based uh, protein foods, for example, so not rely so heavily on meat in my diet. So I'll have, we'll have tofu pretty regularly, probably like once or twice a week, it's one of, one of our dinner options, you know, so I try to be a little less reliant on meat in particular because of potential concerns there from con contribution to climate change, you know, and then, then I've had a lot of conversations about 
you know, we have like monocropping is a, is a problem, right? But at the same time, like as an eater, I'm not always sure exactly what I can do about that, right? And so, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I'm eating Ezekiel bread, which has all kinds of different grains. Like, is that is that better? Is that better for the environment than just eating like a whole wheat bread? Like, fuck, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm liking to think it is. Um, you know, they're using they're using like some uh, ancient type grains, right? Which in theory have you're going to raise differently, you know, require different uh, inputs than like massive monocrop cultures. But at the same time, like it's not always clear to me as an eater exactly what it is I can do. Okay, I go to my local Hannaford, right, like my grocery store. And it's like, how can I tell how far this tomato traveled to get to me? Right? And it's not always self-evident or easy to do. We need to have these conversations and get policy leaders to to make decisions that will help enact you know, whatever that evidence says is going to be most helpful. How can we use less water? Right? How can we start to promote crops that are less resource intensive? Right? So maybe that means eating more beans because they can be their great cover crops, right? That can then get turned into the soil. Like they're really helpful in some areas. Maybe it's eating, you know, eating more tofu, which I'm okay with, right? We've, we've found some good recipes, eating a little less meat, um, finding other protein sources like, like crickets or insects that are accepted in a lot of a lot of parts of the world. So my general thought is like, as, as an individual eater, I find it challenging to know like, well, is this choice I'm making, is this better for the environment? You know, I tried to think broadly and think, okay, I'm not eating a ton of processed food, which has to go through a whole other set of processing and requires, you know, more electricity and, and more fossil fuel use to, to turn, turn one thing into something else. So in my mind, at least, that's, that's helpful. Uh, and then, you know, I try to eat locally as, as much as we reasonably can. You know, we, I don't go to the farmer's market too often, um, even though we have one here. Like the timing of it's just not necessarily uh, incredibly convenient for us. But while I'm at the store, it's like I'm choosing more, a lot of, you know, more organic options might help. You know, Do, am I overly convinced it's going to make this massive difference? You know, no. But I'm hoping as we have a larger conversation about climate change and a larger conversation about how, how food fits into that, that there are policy decisions that are made that'll help change some of the, the structures going on there that are contributing to it, right? Because it's a lot of big things behind the scenes that we don't really see. From Dr. Katz's vantage point, he says it's simple. Do I get a Tesla? can't afford a Tesla. What, what else have you got? Well, you know, you can eat more plants and, and less animals. It's the single most actionable thing an individual can do. So yeah, solar power is great and wind power is great and carbon sequestration and, you know, all that. But, you know, probably the single most actual thing you can do is, you know, do not get a hamburger today. Uh, you know, eat beans instead of beef. And by the way, that would save everybody a lot of money. There's all this fussing about the cost of more nutritious food. But there's one example where you could eat far better, save a lot of money. If most of the time, most Americans ate beans when they otherwise would be eating beef, that America could satisfy 60% of the greenhouse gas emission reduction pledge made in the Paris Accord. Individual action could add up to most of the commitment made there with that single food substitution, which by the way has also been shown in particular in a 2010 paper out of Harvard by Adam Bernstein and colleagues that offer major advantages in terms of cardiovascular risk. Just that one substitution, beans for beef. So better for your health, kinder and gentler, better for the planet. You know, it, it's just one example. So I think making people aware 
of the opportunity to make a contribution. By the way, it, you know, better economically, better for your health, kinder, gentler, better for the planet. Yet I recently read some interesting research suggesting that the biggest way any individual can contribute to, say, reducing their carbon footprint is to donate to the most effective nonprofits aimed at helping with climate change. Here's how that works. The average carbon footprint in the U.S., which is the total amount of greenhouse gases generated per person per year, is about 16 tons. Now, if you were to completely give up three things, and this would be a big ask, your car, transatlantic flights, and animal foods, you could reduce your total by about six tons, taking it down to 10. However, every dollar donated to the Clean Air Task Force, which is a group that lobbies the U.S. government to reduce fossil fuel usage and invest in clean energy innovation, has been shown to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by one ton. So you donating a mere $6 would accomplish the same thing as giving up your car, air travel, and meat for an entire year. So $16 would help neutralize your entire footprint for that year. $160 would help neutralize your footprint for a decade. And $1,600 would help neutralize your footprint for a century, if you were to live that long. Of course, this isn't to say that we can fix climate change with money alone, or that individual actions don't matter. It's just that they may matter less than large-scale societal changes and innovations. And those kinds of changes tend to happen more at the policy level than on our dinner plates. Okay, I'm going to take a little break here so I can talk about one of our sponsors, Precision Nutrition. While it might feel weird to have another set of nutrition ideas thrown into the mix of this episode, I want to let you know that Precision Nutrition is different. Their nutrition paradigm is completely agnostic. Whether you're plant-based or keto or high-carb or carnivore, they can help. But you don't even need to care about the name diets for Precision Nutrition to help. That's because they offer something more, something they call deep health. Now, deep health is defined as a balanced diet of fresh whole foods, sufficient exercise combined with genuine rest, access to clean air and clean water, real human connection and sincere emotional expression, purpose, joy, and using your life in the service of them. So it's not just about how people eat, although that's part of it. It's also about how they move, think, respond, solve problems, and exist in the world around them. If that sounds deep, well, that's the point. And it's what's made them the biggest nutrition coaching, education, and software company in the world. If you'd like to learn more about Precision Nutrition, including their number one rated nutrition certification program, Plus, get some incredible free resources to help you eat better, transform your health, maybe even help others do the same. Please visit www.precisionnutrition.com backslash JB, my initials. Free stuff awaits, plus early access to PN's programs and a nice discount. Again, that's www.precisionnutrition.com backslash JB. All right, back to the show. 
Beyond the plants versus animals debate, another huge debate that's raged on for decades has focused on the ideal macronutrient split. How much protein, carbohydrate, and fat each person should be getting, and in what ratios. Yet, as Dr. David Katz mentions, interest in macronutrient prescriptions may be waning. So the, the reason that I renounce the, the macronutrient space is it's not helpful. Uh, it's very clear, whether you're talking about RCTs or you're talking about population-level experience, that you can have a really great diet or a really bad diet that is very low in fat or very high in fat. You can have a really great diet, and, and by great I mean in every way that matters to me, and I'll come to that in just a second, or a really bad diet that's very high in carbohydrate or very low in carbohydrate. And so it really depends what are the foods. You know, a diet that's made up of a balanced array of wholesome foods to which our kind of animal is natively adapted is apt to serve us well. And a diet that isn't will serve us ill, and you don't get that answer by stipulating a macronutrient threshold specifically with regard to fat and carbohydrate, the ones that prevail. We're a little more boxed in with regard to protein, but there's a range there too, and that's also not helpful. You'll notice that Dr. Saladino echoes Dr. Katz's statement. I want to be very clear that I don't subscribe to a particular macronutrient ratio as the one macronutrient ratio for humans. I think that humans appear to be able to thrive pretty well with a variety of macronutrient ratios. And that's a really good thing because there are certainly times, depending on the latitude, when you will not have many carbohydrates available. And so it's very good that humans can do beta oxidation and make ketones in the liver and, and do this and be in ketosis. But I am not so dogmatic about macronutrient ratios. I spoke with Dr. Jason Fung, author of The Obesity Code, and he too shies away from macronutrient prescriptions. Here's why. The whole macro split thing always, you know, I actually don't think it's a useful conversation either. Because, again, this is the whole point of nutritionism, which is this whole idea that you can break down foods into their macronutrient composition and they will be the same. And again, it's not true. If you take beans and you take flour, like white bread, they're both carbohydrate, but the response of your body is, again, completely different. So for example, if you eat bread, you've got amylopectin A. If you eat beans, you get amylopectin C, which is much less digestible. And you get different effects, right? If you eat, uh, if you drink a lot of soda, for example, you have no effect on your satiety hormones. You eat a big pile of beans, all carbohydrate, right? A lot of carbohydrate there. You are going to have an effect on satiety. So completely different. If you eat a pile of beans, you're going to be full. You eat, you know, you drink Coca-Cola and have a couple of cookies. You don't feel full, right? So again, completely different. So this idea that, hey, if you simply have the same macronutrients, it's going to have the same effect on your body is false. It's just false. And again, in, in, in my book, The Obesity Code, I, I stayed away from saying, you know, 40% carbs or less or something like that, because I don't believe that. I don't think it's true. What you need to do is avoid processed foods because processed foods have been changed in a way that our body doesn't really know what to do with. It applies to, to refined carbohydrates, for example, and it re applies to refined oils, I think, and it applies to refined uh, meats, too. Like, you know, eating bologna is not the same as eating grass-fed beef. Same thing with refined carbohydrates. So you take wheat, for example. 
Now, you're not eating wheat berries. What you've done is you've taken away all the fiber, you've taken away all the fat, and you've essentially left 100% carbohydrate, but you've done more than that because you've ground it to a very, very fine dust. So you take flour, you throw it up, it, you know, it's, it stays in the air. It's very, very fine. And what happens when it's very, very fine? Well, your absorption of those carbohydrates is going to be very high, right? So instead of eating a bean, which has very low absorption, very slow uptake, and so on, you've got this very, very fine dust of 100% carbohydrate that didn't exist in nature because you had to process it to get it that fine. Well, that's going to have a different effect on you. It's going to have a different effect. You've taken away the protein, so there's no peptide YY. They've taken away all the fat because, you know, that's why stuff goes rancid. And therefore, you don't have cholecystokinin. You don't have the satiety. You've taken away all the fibers. You don't, you don't activate the stretch receptors in the stomach. So you don't have any satiety. Now you can eat a lot more of that than would be actually good for you. So when you eat natural foods, there are natural ways that your body is going to respond in order for you to limit the amount of foods you are going to get full. So if you eat meat, for example, you can go to a restaurant and you can, you know, in Texas, they have these things, eat 60 ounces in an hour and we'll give it to you free. They're not giving away a lot of free steak because you can't do it. You can't eat it. Very few people can eat it because of those natural satiety mechanisms. And that's all down to the hormones again. Right. So it's not about I think this whole discussion about macronutrients is, in a sense, a sort of misguided one. After talking to quite a few people, two things became clear to me. First, the dogmatic discussions seen around macronutrient splits are sort of a problem of mistaking description for prescription. Let me explain what I mean. Macronutrient ratios are often used in the research as one way to describe the composition of a diet that was used in the experiment, for example. What then happens is that people mistake that description for a prescription. And when they do, they miss important details about the actual food that was eaten. And the second thing that became clear to me is that most leading thinkers agree humans can thrive under a wide range of macronutrient intakes as long as a couple things are true. Protein needs are met, most of the diet comes from high quality, minimally processed food sources, and overeating is kept in check. Yet, in spite of all the evidence, in spite of the fact that most experts agree that a wide range of macronutrients can support health, many people have a hard time leaving behind their affinity for a particular macronutrient split. For some, like Brian St. Pierre, it may feel like these sorts of brand loyalties are a function of results. Obviously, it struck some type of chord in them. Like maybe eating this way really worked for them. And you see that a lot, right? Where people buy into an approach because they saw tremendous results. And it's like, well, man, it, it must just be that no one else gets this. And I've got to spread this gospel to the rest of the world, right? They've got to understand like how much this works. But as Matt Fitzgerald, author of Diet Cults, points out, it likely also has something to do with identity. In Diet Cults, I make the point uh, that, you know, I, I take sort of a historical perspective and I make the argument that, you know, morality as a phenomenon did not always exist. It, you know, like, Certain animals have sort of a, a biologist would tell you that have a proto morality. Well, that's sort of where we started out. And if you go, you know, way back eons, 
when life was much simpler, no cell phones and all that. Well, where would morality have started? Where would it have gotten its foothold? I argue it was probably very likely in food. You know, initially, you know, humans were the story of an ever-expanding dietary repertoire, right? Like our, our ancestors left the trees. Well, guess what? Different foods were on the ground. What we did a lot of is try foods and see what they did to our bodies. <laughs> and there were a lot of experiments that obviously would have gone awry. And so you had sort of, uh, initially, taboos would form around, don't eat that. Like, it's not good for you. It's toxic. Do eat this. It is good for you. And so those laws, you can see how just over time, they would become sublimated. And at some point, they were no longer just about food. They were about, our tribe doesn't eat that. Let that tribe go ahead and eat it <laughs> and get sick. And we think, you know, in, in 2020, the age of science and technology, that we're doing something radically different, that all of our dietary decisions are evidence-based and rational. Baloney. You know, we're still up to the same old games. And, and not, that the, not that it's a bad thing. It's okay to have your identity, you know, interwoven with your food choices. Uh, but it's best to recognize that that is, in fact, what we're doing. And that's why, that's why it's only to be expected that, you know, the major dietary battles taking place today are to an extent proxy wars for politics and ethics and morality and, and identity as well. This again brings us back to the same place, values. Truly, if you look closely enough, most nutrition debates are not based on clear human health data, but on values and on identity-based decision-making. Okay, so this is where we're going to end part two of this three-part series. In part one, we covered what is perhaps the biggest diet debate of the decade, plants versus animals for human health, and possible ways to reconcile the two. In part two, what you just listened to, we covered two other debates, plants versus animals for environmental health and the ideal macronutrient split, looking for common ground among these also. And in part three, we'll cover a new concept called agnostic healthy eating that offers a refreshing way to think about good nutrition without adding more dogma to the menu. So I hope you'll come back and listen to the last part of this series. My goal is to help you look at nutrition in a new way so you can make better eating decisions for yourself and better guide the decisions of those around you. Before we end, I want to make sure you don't miss out on something. Editing this show was sad for me because I did in-depth interviews with each of the guests, most of them lasting 90 minutes or more, and we had to whittle them down, which means a lot of insights were left on the cutting room floor. However, we're making those full interviews available right now for you totally free at the Dr. John Berardi Show website. These interviews really are treasure troves of information. And to access them, as well as a transcript of this main episode you just listened to, pop over to www.drjohnberardishow.com. Also, one more thing. If you like what we're doing with the show, please consider reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. Clicking that little subscribe button on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to us also makes a difference. So, reviewing and subscribing, it helps a lot. Thanks for considering.
Before signing off, I'd like to thank our production team, Marjorie Korn, my research partner and co-writer on the show, Martin D'Souza, our producer, and the team at Sound On Studio who take care of our sound management, design, and editing. You can learn more about them at soundonsoundoff.com. And thanks to you for listening. Listening.